And if you would, please take your copy of the Word of God, and let's turn together in the book of Psalms to Psalm 121. Please listen carefully. This is the Word of God. A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. Well, we come this morning, if you are pleased to vote in favor of the session's motion that will come to you in a few minutes, we come to a fork in the road, or the beginnings of the fork in the road. Catherine and I plan to worship with you and the children in the weeks and months that lie ahead as we're out of time for a number of conferences and different things, but we plan to worship here through the rest of this year and even partly next year when Catherine will be here in Greensboro and I will take up the charge in January at First Pres in uh, Columbia. But we come to a fork in the road for both, both of our families, your church family and ours. And there are many dangers that lie ahead of us, some that are predictable, some that are not predictable, some that are likely and some that are unlikely, some that are real and many others that are imagined. And we wonder to ourselves, how will we cope? What will we do? And I've been thinking about that this week as I've been meditating and pondering what I should bring in my final sermon to you. I've been reminding you in recent weeks of the importance of the gospel of God and keeping it central here, as I know the elders and Kyle and the rest of the staff and deacons will keep the gospel centered here as God keeps them faithful. I have absolute confidence in that. So, I've been reminding you of the gospel of God. Well, this morning I want to remind you of the God of the gospel, who He is and what you can expect from Him, what God will be for you and what God will do with you in the weeks and months and years that lie ahead. And to do that, I want to look with you at this psalm of ascents, these songs that pilgrim Israel sang as they made their way up to Jerusalem in the mountains. And you can see the psalmist and his family going up, maybe by themselves, maybe in a wagon train of friends from their village, but they're traveling up through the wilderness. And they face many threats as they do, bad men, wild animals, poisonous snakes, 
inclement weather, threats on every side. The psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. There's a couple of ways you could take that. Uh, the hills are an obvious source of danger, right, and threat. You could imagine him seeing with me in your mind's eye. He's coming to the end of a long day. The shadows are lengthening. He looks up at the craggy peaks above him, and he wonders, is that a shadow of a rock? Or is it the shadow of a robber or a ravenous beast crouching, waiting to pounce on me? Those shadows could make you more than a little bit paranoid. And as they say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. (laughs) And remember, these are the days when he has no cell phone, no text messages, no ability to call 911. He might cry out in the darkness if a lion pointers on him, but will anyone hear him? Is anybody listening? And you could watch him with me in your mind's eye, try to quell that surging sense of panic rising up from his guts. So the hills are a, are a source of danger. They're also a source of hope and promise, safety. We speak, don't we, of running to the hills in times of disaster, high ground, In Psalm 11, you remember David getting advice from some well-meaning but foolish counselor, and David, you remember his response, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Mountain is higher ground, a good place to fight from, offers plenty of places to hide. So, the hills can be a source of danger. They can also be the source of safety. And so, how do you, the question that faces us in this psalm is, where do you look in those paranoid moments of danger and difficulty on life's journey? Where do you look? And the answer is, you must look beyond the hills and all of their threats and all of their promises. Look beyond the hills to the one who made the hills. Look to the Lord God, Jehovah, He is the keeper of your soul. And as you read this psalm, and the ESV does a beautiful job of carrying this reputation, the Hebrew verb to keep, and there are many verbs for keeping in Hebrew, but the Hebrew word to keep, one particular word, um, resonates through this psalm again and again and again. Six times it repeats. And some of the other uh, translations find such repetition boring, and so they change the word keep, guard, protect, and they miss the whole point of the psalm. The psalmist could have picked other Hebrew words that mean the same thing as this one, but he picked the same one, like the drone of a bagpipe that goes through uh, a a Scottish air, that drone always in the background. In almost every verse you have this, the Lord keeps. Verse 2, he will not keep, he, he who keeps you will not slumber Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your soul, literally, or your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. The Lord is your keeper. So that's the, that's the point this morning as we part ways, metaphorically, as shepherd and sheep. 
that as I leave you, as the Lord moves me on and takes me away, the Lord will keep you. He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you. In what way will the Lord keep you, though you wonder to yourself? Well, there are a number of ways. I think there are five, at least. First of all, you can expect God, you can trust God to keep you on safe ground. And you see that there in the first two verses. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. There's a couple of things here. First of all, there's a merism here, heavens and the earth. It's a Hebrew poetic device. We use rhyme. They use other things. One of the other things they use in their poetry are merisms. We do it too. The A to the Z of something doesn't just mean you know the beginning and the end of it, the first lesson and the last lesson. You know everything in between, right? We clean the house from top to bottom. doesn't just mean top and bottom, but it means everything in between. You clean the whole house. So when God says He makes the heavens and the earth, He's not just saying He made the world up there and He made the world down here. He means He made everything in between. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the bottoms, and the peaks of the mountains are his also, bottom to top. The sea is his, that which is wet, but his hands form the dry land, that which is dry. His merism, this, 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 his sovereign control is all-encompassing. If I can riff off Abram Kuyper, the famous theologian and prime minister of the Netherlands, would to God we could go back to the day when presidents and prime ministers were systematic theologians of the Reformed variety. But you remember his famous phrase, there is not one thumb's breadth, he said in the Dutch, but we say there was not one square inch of the whole cosmos over which the Lord Christ does not say, mine, it's mine, all of it's mine. People often ask me, what would you do if aliens suddenly showed up in Washington. People tell us they're already here, right? <laughs> uh, those unidentified flying objects or UAW, I forget the UAV, whatever the, whatever the, uh, the new unidentified airborne vehicle, I forget what the, the, the new nomenclature is for it. Somebody brought some fossilized aliens uh, to a South American country recently, this week actually, I think, and I was quite encouraged because, you know, I'd often thought maybe they're like 60 feet tall. Actually, it turns out they're only 35 inches tall, which is much less formidable. They may have death rays for eyes, though, but that remains to be seen. But would it shake my faith if aliens suddenly turned up in their flying saucers? No. It would not. Whoever they are, Whatever they look like and from whence they come, I know three things about them. I know who made them. I know who owns them. And I know who controls them. He made the heavens and the earth and everything in between. What comfort this should give you to know that 
you're always, whatever battles you fight in life, whatever obstacles you face, whatever enemies come upon you, you always fight on God's home turf. USC were playing Georgia yesterday. I'm sorry, I don't know who won. Um, I think I can predict who won, but I don't know for sure. But I was talking to a friend yesterday who was telling me that the USC home advantage is amazing. Apparently, the atmosphere in that stadium is electric, and it makes the world of difference when you fight on home turf. And that was always the problem for the pagan gods or the godlets and Philistines and the Amorites and the Amalekites. Their gods were God here, but not there. They were the god of the lowlands, but not the god of the hills. They were the god of the sea, but not the god of the dry land. That's exactly the point. The God of Israel, Yahweh, is God absolutely everywhere. The government may one day cramp your religious liberty, but they can't interfere with God's liberty. The God of heaven can do what He wants, where He wants it, and how He wants it done. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what is this that you have done? He is God everywhere. He is God from the almost limitless wealth of Martha's vineyard all the way down to the almost bottomless poverty of the slums of Mumbai. He's he's God in Buckingham Palace, and he's God in the labor camps of North Korea. He's God on earth, and he's God in Alpha Centauri and to the ends of the universe. As Mutir says, every threat arises and every journey is made in the world where God rules supreme. Where can, you, where can you go from God's Spirit this morning, Christian? Where can you flee from His presence? If you ascend to heaven, He's there. If you make your bed in Sha'ul, behold, He's there. If you take the wings of the dawn and fly to the remotest part of the sea, even there His hand will lead you and His right hand will lay hold of you. If you say, surely the darkness around me will be night. Is that your thought this morning? Some troubles come in like a flood, and you think the, dark, the light is gone, and the darkness has come. Even the darkness is not dark to him, and night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to him. He formed your inward parts. He wove you together in your mother's womb. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Your frame was not hidden from him when you were made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. His eyes saw your unformed substance. And in his book are written all of the days that he ordained for you when as yet there was not one of them. You can trust God to keep you always on safe ground. The ground he made and the ground he controls. Secondly, this morning, you can expect God to keep you in focus and from accidents. In focus and from accidents. Verse 3 and 4, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Wandering so far from home, every step was fraught with danger. Every step could be your last. Just a careless trip, a slip, and you could twist your ankle. You could 
develop an infected wound. You could break your leg. You could dash your brains out against a rock, falling over a cliff into a ravine. Countless danger. And if you, if you tr- even just turning your ankle, you're 30 miles away from the nearest village, maybe in the middle of a wilderness through the mountains, you turn your ankle. It's a serious problem. Your wife might be able to carry you. Your kids can't carry you. How do you get from whence to whither? And there's no crutches to help you walk. Lions, hyenas in the wilderness beginning to circle. Dangerous. When you get tired, you can make mistakes. I was coming down, I was with Josiah up in, up in um, Grandfather Mountain in the summer. On coming down, we did both of the, the, of the major peaks there and came down. It was about seven miles, but it took us all day. It's such a steep grade, and you're clambering over rocks, and on our way down, it began to drizzle a bit. The rocks were slippery, and I was getting tired. My hips were sore. My knees were sore. Every step was painful, and I was just tired. And I, I stepped on the rock a wrong way, slipped, and reached out for a branch. And I caught the branch, but I also caught um, a little broken twig coming out from the branch. It wasn't a twig. It was as thick as your thumb and sharp. And it went right into my palm and cut my left palm quite badly. It just healed actually now, six weeks later. But it's amazing how distraction can, and fatigue can get the better of you. But God is not like us. We need fatigue. We're better in the morning than the afternoon, or some of you are better in the evening than the morning. But God is the same all day long. He never gets tired. He never gets distracted. He never gets weary. Even young men grow tired and weary, and youth stumble and fall. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles and run and not be weary and walk and not be faint. Remember the end of Psalm 139, the psalmist says, How precious are your thoughts toward me. They're more in number than the grains of sand. And all of them are thoughts of love. When I awake, the psalmist says, I'm still with you. There's a beautiful poem, which I'll not read to you because it would overwhelm me, by, by, by Jimmy Stewart about his dog, Bo. And he talks about how this old dog would sit, and sometimes when I'm sleeping, he says, I feel him watching me. And I reach out my hand and pat his head. You know, God watches you when you, you wake up, and God, as it were, standing at the end of the bed, still here. I haven't gone anywhere. Those seven, eight hours sleep where you're completely defenseless. But God is there watching, protecting, keeping. You can trust God to keep you in safe ground. You can trust God to keep you in focus and from danger. Thirdly, you can trust God to keep you through thick and through thin. Verse 6 and 7, "'The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night.'" The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your soul. Total protection. Another mirrorism. Sun and moon, day and night, 24-7 protection. Commentators debate what he mean by sun and moon. At the very least, he means that. 
But there's also a sense that the sun and the moon threatened imaginary danger, right? The, the, the culture of Israel, they looked to the sun and the moon as mystical powers. We still speak of sunstroke. They had words for that, and they spoke of people being moonstruck. We speak of lunatics, people struck by the moon. And there's definitely something about the moon's gravitational power that when there's a full moon, um, people go a little bit crazy. Murder rates go up. Mental illness spikes. ER departments are busier full moon than otherwise. But even though it's, we know they, they really don't offer danger apart from the heat of the sun, right? There's, there's a little bit of imagination there, but imaginary dangers can be worse than real dangers. I remember as a child watching a comedy. It was some comedy show. I forgot what it was. I was watching it, and in this comedy skit, one of the um, actors became a werewolf. And it was, looking back, it was silly. He had hairy hands and claws and, you know, big eyebrows and smoke, um, hair came out of his ears and he just looked a bit unkempt. Uh, I realize now I just remember from, from Duck Dynasty. But it was... <laughs> but to, to a five-year-old boy, it terrified me. And there's one scene I remember seeing where the, the hand of this... this uh, this hairy hand with claws came round the door, and, 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 and that, that image stayed with me as a child. And, and I'd be lying in bed at night thinking about this hand coming round the door, opening the door, terrify me. Um, and I knew it was, mum and dad would say, Neil, it's, really, it's not real. I knew it wasn't real, but that didn't take it away. And sometimes the imaginary dangers can be the worst ones, can't they? But even this imaginary danger, the sun and the moon, have no power to touch you. I will keep you from all evil, totality. That doesn't mean evil won't come into your life at times. You know, he promised a moment ago, I would not let your foot be moved. Your feet slip was the promise in the previous verse. Even our, even our footsteps are kept by God. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. And God delights in His way. When He falls, He will not be hurled headlong. Our feet do sometimes slip, but when we fall, we fall. We don't aren't hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds our hand. So God isn't promising we never fall, we never stub our toe. But He means that you'll never stub your toe by an unintended by heaven accident. Even our falls, even our moments of forgetfulness, when we stub our toe, are governed by God. Every slip of your foot governed by God. God keeps your feet and will never allow you to slip without purpose. And no evil will ever come into your life. The Bible promises, many are the sorrows of the wicked. I think it's Psalm 34. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him like a bubble. Those big inflatable bubbles people climb inside and can roll down the hill bad sport. But you're surrounded by a bubble of loving kindness. Nothing can get at you. Nothing can touch you, Christian. Dementia can't rot your brain. Cancer can't get your body. 
A blockage can't come into your coronary arteries. A car can't strike your children without these things passing through the loving kindness of God. And just like when you put your hand into the swimming pool to grab your children, your hand gets wet with the water. When evil comes into your life, it has to pass through the bubble of God's loving kindness, and it comes to you wrapped up and covered in loving kindness, even when it tries to get its hands on you. I will keep your soul. He will keep your soul. Verse 7b, it is, life can be a translation of soul, but I I like the idea of soul. He keeps your body, keeps your soul. The totality of you is precious to God. He will keep you through thick and through thin. He will keep you also. You can expect Him to keep you from first step to journey's end. And you see that there in verse 7. The Lord will keep you, sorry, verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Another merism going out, coming in. Not just the beginning and the end, but every step in between. I always use this illustration when I preach this sermon. So some of you may have heard this before some years ago when I preached through the Psalms of Ascent. But the Falklands War in, North, in, in, in Britain, one of the last major wars, the last major war Britain fought, and I remember as a child, um, I remember my dad used to videotape movies that were on TV, and w- one of the James Bond movies, the, one of the Roger Moore one, or Sean Connery, I forget, I think it was Sean Connery one. But um, in the middle of that movie, the Argentine, Argentinians invaded the Falklands, and it, it suddenly came on that the, 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 the James Bond went away, and it came on, breaking news. Argentina has invaded the Falklands. And some years later, when I was like a young teenager, I was watching that movie again, and it happened that broke into the video, the Falklands have been invaded. I thought, oh, no, it's happening again. (laughs) Because Britain couldn't fight that war now. We haven't got enough military. The frightening time, would we win? Major gamble by Margaret Thatcher that came off. But it was one of, those, one of the first wars where we were kind of beginning to get into the 24-hour news cycle, and there was the specter of live reporting from the front lines on TV. And the reporters were given very strict instructions not to report any of the, the ship movements, right, um, or the troop movements, or to give any report on casualties, because they didn't want to give any information to the Argentinians. And so... I remember saying Brian Hanrahan, who's one of the famous reporters in Britain that did many of the, the war zones reporting in Britain. But Brian Hanrahan was on the Ark Royal, and the Harrier pilots were flying out doing bombing runs on the Argentinian positions. And Harriers fly, fly pretty low and slow, and so they're very vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire and anti-aircraft missiles. And the parents of these boys flying these planes were terrified at home, wondering, you know, did my son survive the mission? And Brian Hanrahan was forbidden to give any reports on casualties. But he found a way to obey the 
the spirit of the law by dancing around the letter of the law. And he said at the end of his report every night when these missions were finished, he said, and he said, I counted all the boys out and I counted them all back home again. And it brought such comfort to the parents back home. I counted them all out and I counted them all in again. Your sons are safe tonight. And the parents back in Britain could lay their heads on the pillow and sleep sound. That's exactly what the psalmist is saying to you this morning. God counts us out and he counts us in. But unlike Brian Hanrahan, he isn't stuck in the carrier. He goes with us in all of our sorties and protects us from now to eternity. Derek Kidner says the last line takes good care of this journey. And it would be hard to decide which half of it is more encouraging, the going out or the coming home. The fact that it starts from now or that it runs on not to the end of time, but to a time without end, like God Himself, who is my portion forever. He watches her going forth and her coming in from this time forth and forever. He keeps you safe. God's going to take me away from you and you away from me. And we both feel it. I love you. A shepherd likes to be among his sheep, and the thought of not being here is troubling. But God will be here. And your elders will be here. Kyle will be here. Chris and Paul will be here. But God will be here. The good shepherd will not forsake you, and he will watch over your going out and your coming in from first step to journey's end, from this day forth and forever. And lastly, this evening, this morning, we haven't got to evening yet, um, this morning, you can trust the Lord to stay close at hand, to keep you close at hand. Verse 5, the middle of the psalm, the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade on your right hand, by your right hand. That's a wonderful thought. God doesn't stay at a distance. It's not like Matt or Brad or Josh or David is in trouble. Send help. One of the, not Gabriel, you're too senior. No, not you, Michael. One of the junior angels. You go and rescue Rufus. God makes use of the angels. They're ministering spirits. He gives his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. He makes use of them. But, but God is like the ultimate helicopter parent. He stays close. He, he doesn't just delegate. He's right there at the, as, as your shade and your right hand. When you're a children, children, do you ever try and run away from your shadow? It's impossible, isn't it? It's always there. And God is your shadow. Sermon illustration dog Mark 2. Mark 3 is Baxter. Mark 2 was Armani, a Doberman. And they called Dobermans Velcro dogs because you can't get away from them. They follow you everywhere. It's cute. It's also kind of weird and annoying at times when you're using the restroom. They'll nose their way into the door. And they'll walk up and sit on your foot. 
I just sit there and look at you. <laughs> Velcro dogs. You can't get away from them. Well, Jehovah is a Velcro God. There's no getting away from Him. No locked door can keep Him out. Even when you run away from Him, you find Him standing at the place you ran to, just like Jonah did. He's always there as the shade on your right hand, which is why the sun won't strike you by day or the moon by night, as He overshadows you with His presence and His fatherly love. Last week in the evening, I finished my evening series entirely by accident, providential accident, that we finished on the, the departure of Elijah and the mantle passing to Elisha. Now, that was entirely by accident. It was not planned. We did that series months ago before I even knew this would be happening. And the connection between me and Elisha, Elijah, very tangential, we're both preachers, we speak, that's it. He was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament and so forth and so on. But as I was preaching, I, I flubbed it. I, I had a really great quote from Ralph Davis that I couldn't see in my notes, and I ad-libbed it and flubbed it. But I wanted to read it to you this morning because it's so encouraging. As Ralph Davis writes about Elijah, right? Elijah. And how God took him away from Israel. And this is true when God takes any pastor away from any church. Our help is in the name of the Lord not in the charisma of His servants. God's leaders change, but God's power persists. Perhaps sometimes God removes His most illustrious servant, like Elijah, so that we will not make idols of them as though they are the only conduits of God's help. Perhaps God deliberately displays His might through lesser instruments so that we will not be transfixed on the pizzazz of God's servants, but on the strength of God's arm. So God used me after He took away Bill Marsh. Bill Marsh is a much more competent executive leader than I am. And the kind of guy goes on a camp trip and forgets to bring the temples. And so you all have to learn to trust that I would be able to lead you, even though I'm not gifted executively. And likewise, the next man that God calls here won't have all the weaknesses I have, praise the Lord, but he won't have some of the strengths God's given me as well. We're different men, different personalities. Perhaps God deliberately displays His might through lesser instruments so that we will not be transfixed on the pizzazz of God's servants, but on the strength of God's arm. This point reminds me of Emmanuel Stickelberger's description of Calvin's funeral. Calvin had given definite instructions for his funeral. Nothing must distinguish it from, from that of any other citizen of Geneva. His body was to be sewed into a white shroud and laid in a simple pine coffin. At the grave, there were to be neither words nor song. You can speak words this evening. Only 90 seconds, though. <laughs> the wishes of the deceased were scrupulously carried out but although in accordance with his will all pomp was avoided, an unnumbered multitude followed the coffin to the cemetery, Plain Palais in Geneva, 
with deep respect and silent grief. He who was averse to all ambition did not even want a tombstone. Just a few months later, when foreign students desired to visit the place where the Reformer's earthly remains rested, the place could no longer be pointed out among the many other fresh mounds of dirt. They didn't know where he was buried, and we don't today know where Calvin's remains are. When Elisha came down from the mountain, he didn't say, where's Elijah? Elijah was gone. What he said was very instructive. Where is the God of Elijah? And as the waters parted, God was saying, where's the God of Elijah? He's right where he always is, right here with his people, with all of his power and all of his wisdom and all of his love and grace and mercy and all of his searing righteousness and justice and all of his grace. On the tomb of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, there are three letters and one sentence. C.H.S. Let my name perish. Let his name endure forever. That's my hope and my prayer as I leave you this morning. Let my name perish. Let the name of Christ endure forever in this place, from your pulpit, in the sacraments, and present amidst the congregation, that the glory of God's name and the growth of God's kingdom and the good of God's people here will go on unhindered. As you look back over the days of blessing that came before and the days of blessing that came after my departure, like Calvin's tomb, they'll be indistinguishable among the other mounds because not one was greater than the other. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord cause His Word to abide richly in you from this day forth and forevermore. If you're here this morning, you've never come to the Christ of Psalm 121. Christ is the Colossus behind this psalm. He is the Word with all of this vast keeping power. I want to encourage you this morning. Put your trust in Him. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. His eyes make a blind man see, and His Word makes dead men live. And he said to each of you this morning, I am dead for you. On the cross, I am dead for the sinners all across this world. And if you will come to me, whoever you are, I will not cast you out. Whoever will may come. Whoever will may come. That's a a word as wide as the cosmos. For each and every sinner, none are excluded who do not exclude themselves. Come to me, Jesus says. 
and you will find rest for your souls. I take all of the guilt, all of the shame, all of your iniquities and transgressions and sins. I'll take them as mine, and I will clothe you with the resplendent robes of my righteousness. You'll not find an offer like that anywhere else. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray this morning, O God, we pray this morning that the names of men will perish from this pulpit, that our names will decrease and become invisible. We're pygmies, like little fossilized aliens, a few inches tall. But may your Son's name shine forever like the sun. May his voice in this place be like the sound of many waters in the hearts and souls of those who believe. May his word always perform its work. Keep this church faithful, O God, to the preaching of the true word of God and the true worship of God in spirit and in truth. And keep them kept, O Lord, or they shall not be kept at all. And keep me kept. As we go forward, O God, we will remain united in prayer, concern, brotherly affection. And that as I pray for these people, they will pray for me. And that you will work through us both for the glory of your name, the growth of your kingdom, and the good of your people in Christ. Amen.